everyone, is everyone sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Make sure you're comfortable. If you're listening on the tape, there's much hilarity here in the middle of Guildford. Um, uh, feel free to move and put on more layers or just, you, you must be completely free. I, I find I'm not particularly phased by things going on. People often say in church, did you hear the crash? And I go, no. Um, uh, so that's okay. That's absolutely fine. Um, we are going to be spending the day just looking at the, the third person of the Trinity. Um, the, the third uh, person of God, if you like. Um, and I hope today, a, a number of things, I hope that we'll, uh, there'll be some information, if you like, as we um, discover a bit more about what the Bible says of the third person of the Trinity, of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I hope there's an opportunity for us to, to feel like we get to know God better um, as a result. This is an imperfect analogy of the, the, the Spirit. But um, for those of you, that you all have got to know me. I'm, I'm kind of Tim. And um, most of you have probably had a chance to meet my wife, Jo. And so you know me as, as Tim and husband. Tim as husband. Um, and uh, you may have had a chance to meet some of our children. And, and so that, in a sense, that sort of colours in a little bit about me, because you know me as Tim as husband, but also Tim as father. Um, and I don't know whether anyone here, you may not have met, my parents have been to St. Dee's once or twice. Uh, they'll be coming here this Christmas, so you'll get a chance to meet them. But supposing you were to come back to my house um, with my mum and dad, who live down on the south coast, but with them staying around the, the, the lunch table, you'll, you'll then see me as Tim as husband, Tim as father, and Tim as son. And, and in a sense, it will, give you, it, will, it will sort of flesh out and amplify even more who I am to you. More than if you just knew me as Tim's husband, Tim's father. You, you'll notice that my, in front of my mother and father, my table manners will be, I'll just sit up a little straighter. <laughs> and, so little, little telltale signs that, that, oh, I've seen something new of Tim. A, a new perspective, a new side, a new angle on Tim. And um, it's, it's imperfect, that uh, analogy. Um, well, I won't uh, explain why, but I'm just, it's just that I hope that today as we look at the person's spirit, it's not as if it's a kind of um, this, this whole area is an optional extra. Um, it, it's absolutely vital. If you picture three legs of a stool, um, although it's possible, I suppose, to sit on a stool of two legs, it's incredibly hard work <laughs> um, and very frustrating and eventually uh, useless. You need three legs of a stool. And so, in a sense, we need the, the, the three persons of the Trinity fully to understand and know God. But I understand the difficulty. I understand the difficulty because God, God is, you know, God we can kind of, yeah, he's sort of always been there, ever present. Lots of people believe in God, something or someone out there. How you picture, I don't know, sort of big hair and a white beard and just full of knowledge and wisdom. Yeah, God, okay, I can handle, handle that idea. And Jesus, yeah, Jesus I can handle. I've, I've been to the cinema, I saw that film, he, he looks a bit like Robert Powell. Um, and he, you know, he sort of lived and walked where I live and walk. Uh, he was a man. Yeah, I can just about handle... Okay, so God and Jesus, fine. But the, but the Holy Spirit. Um, and of course, maybe uh, the, those of us who are brought up um, with some of the, the traditional language of the church um, and the prayer book language, for example, where he, he is referred to as the Holy Ghost. And um, maybe, maybe you sort of grew up this understanding of, of, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. But we also, we were growing up, weren't we, some of us, on a, on a diet of Scooby-Doo. I'm telling you. 
And so ghosts are not good, they're not great, you know, you don't want to have a relationship with a ghost. You don't want to get close to a ghost, you want to run away from a ghost. So there's a sort of ambivalence if we've, if we've even begun to explore it. God the Father, yes, God the Son, yes, but God the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, um, I don't understand about, about it. And, and there's the first thing I want to try and help us with, is that the, the Holy Spirit is, is, is to be seen as a person. The Holy Spirit is like a title. So the Prime Minister, the Queen. When I say the Queen, you're, you're, you're thinking immediately of a person. Um, you may not know her, but you could, conceivably possible, you could get to know her. And the Queen is the title that we, we give to Elizabeth Windsor. Um, and the Holy Spirit is, if you like, the title. Um, uh, there are other names that Jesus calls him, the, the paraclete, we'll come and see that in a minute. The, that is, the, the, the one who's, who lives alongside us. But elsewhere he's described, the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of Jesus. Elsewhere he's described as the Spirit of God. The New Testament writers indicating that they understood that the, the presence of God could be experienced as we come to know the Holy Spirit. You, you, you know God, you know Jesus. So um, uh, we refer to the Spirit as, as he, a person. The spirit of Jesus living inside us. Let's look at our first reference. And I just want to say, we're going to look at a number of references. The page numbers are all on the, the sheets. Page 1022. I want to root as much as I say, can today uh, of what I say in, in, in the Bible. So that if we're talking about, um, uh, if you like, an experience, a, a personal knowledge, it's a, it, obviously to an extent it's subjective. But I wanted to root it in as much in, in the documents of scripture. And here is um, Jesus preparing his disciples for when he will leave them and talking about the fact that they will not be alone. Uh, that they will continue, in a sense, to have God's presence with them through the Spirit. He says this, uh, chapter 14 and verse 15, the bottom of page 1022. If you love me, he says, you'll keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, he's referring there to God, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Already, do you see the indication there? This isn't some kind of concept, impersonal concept, but, but rather a, a living reality of the person of the Spirit living in us uh, and helping us to understand who the Father is through the Son. I'll give you another advocate. And that word there, it, the, the original word, uh, parakletos, and it literally means one who is called to be alongside. One who is called to be alongside. In the Roman army, I gather they had a, you were buddied up, you were paired up for sort of one-on-one -on -one combat. Um, when you when you broke from the sort of the, the, the ranks of the army, and you, you had a paraclete, that's what it's called, and it comes exactly from this word, one called to be alongside you, who would defend your blind spots. So your your range of vision is is here, and your paraclete stood behind you, guarding your back as you did his, and he was there to defend you and to protect you. One called to be alongside you, and it's it's that sense. In, in, in the kind of battle of life, if I can put it like that, that Jesus promises we will not be alone or, or undefended. 
We will have someone who is, if you like, fighting for us. Who will be in us. The paracletos, the advocate, the one called to be alongside. Um, Gordon Fee has written a book about the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, an extensive study through scripture. And he called the book God's Empowering Presence. As, as the best summation he could come up with for who the Spirit is. God's empowering presence. Releasing us and enabling us to live for God. Now what I want to do for the next uh, 20 minutes or so, the first talk, is really just to see how um, this idea of, uh, well no, not this idea, it's reality, of uh, spirit filled living is not a kind of new fad. We, we, we might be forgiven for thinking that because I, I guess these things sometimes come in, in stages and um, some of you may have come across someone called John Wimber or, or other, uh, other um, characters um, uh, heralding, if you like, a sort of renewal or a revival. And, and so these things come to the sort of fore um, in, uh, in particular sort of ages and stages. And so we might be forgiven for thinking this is a brand new thing and that really proper Christianity has actually just been quite content to bimble along. And I, I, want, to, I want to try and demonstrate in this first talk that, that right from the very beginning, God's empowering presence, the person of the Holy Spirit has been there, um, evident through the pages of scripture, there throughout the whole of creation. And to that end, let's turn to the very first book of the Bible, to Genesis. And to the very start of the creation account. I wonder if you've ever seen this, uh, if you're familiar with the, the creation story. Chapter 1 of Genesis on page 3. <clears throat> and uh, let me read from verse 1. We're looking to see how actually the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was involved right at the beginning. Actively involved in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light and so on. Creation rolls into being. But did you notice that? Verse 2. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Bible writer right back then, clearly understanding, being, being prompted by God, to describe the fact that it was the Spirit of God was there hovering over the waters. And uh, uh, it, it, we see through the creation account how order and harmony and beauty was brought out of darkness and chaos. And it's the testimony of uh, countless Christians today that actually in, in being filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of God, that actually lives that were dark and black and chaotic, have been brought into order and harmony and beauty and power through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Just turn over the page. Continue this creation account. Chapter 2 and verse 7. Um, this is the uh, account in Genesis of the creation of humankind. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the word for breath there, this is much of the Old Testament written in, in the Hebrew language, and uh, the word for breath there is the Hebrew word ruach, 
And elsewhere in the Old Testament, ruach is, is translated as spirit. Very often a lot of the words, both Greek and Hebrew, depend for their precise meaning on their context. Um, and so sometimes you can translate, it's more appropriate to translate ruach as breath, but in other times the context clearly demands that it's spirit that makes the most sense. And those are interchangeable. It's either breath or spirit for that one word. Now here, it, it kind of with the image that's formed, it, it makes sense to talk of, of breath and of breathing. But actually, we could just as legitimately read this verse like that, like this. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the spirit of life. And the man became a living being. The spirit of life that that takes this um, empty, dry, dusty form. You imagine this sort of Tony Hart kind of idea, you know, sort of making this sort of plasticine or sort of dusty, earthy kind of clay figure, um, sort of looking like some kind of man, but, but inanimate, lifeless, until a rather sort of intimate, tender moment. You, you imagine sort of God leaning down and, and literally giving the kiss of life, breathing his spirit into this inanimate form <laughs> And it's then the Bible describes that the man became a living being. What is the source of our life? True life, real life, God intended life. It, it's more than just our intellect or our physical aptitudes. It's more than our emotions, although all of those play a part. Uh, real life, according to the Bible, real life, according to God, is when his spirit is, as it were, breathed into us. We become a living being with reference to God. And I wonder again how many people down the ages can testify to life ceiling, seeming dry and rather sort of meaningless, just devoid of real life until a fresh inspiration of God by his spirit brings meaning and purpose and power to our lives. So there, the spirit involved at creation. Now, just uh, we could spend quite a bit of time in the Old Testament, and I'm, I'm not going to do that, except to say that there are references, um, uh, one of the leaders called Gideon, um, Samson, another, and there are references in the Old Testament to the fact that the Spirit of God came upon and kind of inspired and filled particular people at particular times for particular tasks. Gideon, for example, you can read about him in Judges, if you might have time to look up in, the, in your small groups. Um, he felt um, completely inadequate for the task that God had called him to do. And um, the, the writer of Judges describes how the Spirit came upon him and he was filled with power. Equally, Samson actually was, um, you, you may be familiar with the story, but he was bound. They'd eventually, the Philistines eventually caught him and he was bound, tied up and powerless. And again, Judges records how the Spirit of God came upon him and he, he was able for one last time to break uh, the, the, the um, uh, bonds, the shackles that held him. Two, two examples of the Spirit coming, providing strength in, in our human weakness or, or release when we feel bound. And again, I wonder how many people I've come across in the, in the time I've been uh, ministering and, uh, and uh, living as a Christian minister, the number of people I've come across who would testify to a fresh infilling of God's life, God's spirit, that brings them a strength in a particular situation where they felt weak. 
or actually releases them where they felt inhibited or oppressed or bound. Just as in the Old Testament, at particular times and particular places. So now, as we'll see in a few minutes, um, all the time. Let's, let's pause there for a minute. And just uh, under this heading on the sheet, um, promised by God, just a moment or two of, of background. What God, how God chose to act in human history was to choose people who would be his representatives on earth. And he chose the people that became a nation, Israel. And Israel were known as God's people. In fact, in, in ancient Near Eastern records, they were known as people of the voice. Because these were the people who, who heard God. And the idea was, if you look geographically, Israel is right in the middle of all sorts of neighbouring nations. And the idea was that Israel was to be, if you like, a light in the darkness of the world, to, to show the other nations. God, through Israel, was going to show the other nations what it was to live for him. So he would be present amongst them. And, and other nations would see what it is to live a human life with God present amongst them. And God set up something, this is a sort of Bible word here, um, uh, but I think it's an important one. So let's see if we can pick it up. He, he, he established this agreement, if you like, God and his people Israel, through what is known as a covenant. Now a covenant, I suppose, is, is like a contract, but it's, it's more than that. Um, a contract is two people forming an agreement about something, but retaining very much their, their own identity. A covenant has, carries with it the implication that in, in two parties, two entities coming together, you, you, in a sense, lose your former identity in order to be joined to the new identity, a new thing. We, 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 the closest we come to it is in the marriage service, where two individuals promise, all that I have, I give to you. All that I am, I share with you. Within the love of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In other words, un, un, under God, two people are becoming one new thing. Not, not I and me, but we and us. And, and that's the understanding that God has with the people. Again, it's, it's, so it's not sort of a, a, a concept. We'll sort of tack God on to my life. It's actually, uh, as the people of Israel, the chosen people, we, we only understand ourselves in, in reference to God. We, we are, we are, we're different in some way because he lives with us. And it's in that context that God, for example, gave via Moses the Ten Commandments. It's not, you, you must do this. It's because you are my people and I've promised to be with you through, through covenant. It's, it's like this sort of, this sort of you know, unbroken bond. Because this is now who you are, this is what identifies you, can I, let me give you these, these ten commands so that th- there'll be an indication of what a covenant people look like. So you, a covenant people just worships, worships their God who's brought them into covenant. And they don't steal from one another and they honour their parents and uh, they don't take another's life and so on. But the tragedy of human history actually, not just... Uh, the history of, of Israel, is that the hearts of the people constantly went to, after other gods. They, they, they did not continue to worship the God who'd called them into covenant. Idolatry is the, the number one sin of the whole Old Testament, if not the whole Bible. Idolatry is setting your heart on something or someone other than God. And God 
God knows ultimately that actually if if you begin to wander away from covenant and, and seek to grasp onto other gods, seek to covenant yourself, to bond yourself with other inanimate things, God knows that actually your life will be ruined. And so he... through the people that he raises up, the prophets and uh, people who speak his words, there are warnings. They get more and more dire. Uh, Look, if you do not return to me and live for me and seek seek for me to live in you, then you will come to ruin. Um, uh, The the kind of Bible term is is, is judgment. There will be a a judgment that I will execute on you. Um, I will cut you off from me because I can't have you. You know, we can't have this. Wondering, it, it dishonours covenant. It dishonours the very heart of who I am, a bonded God. But they don't heed the warnings, uh, and the threat is that the other nations will rise up. Nations like Assyria or Babylonia will rise up and just invade Israel, and that, if you know your history, is uh, is what happened. That, if you know your uh, 1980s pop, is what happened, because Boney M took Psalm 137 and I think it went to number one in the charts. Uh, it was a song of the Israelites after the judgment when they'd been carried away into exile in Babylon and by the rivers of Babylon. Um, by the rivers because those were the sacred rivers were sacred to the Gentile nations to, to Babylon and so there they were sitting by someone else's sacred place and it prompted the memory. No, we had a sacred place. By the rivers of Babylon, there we wept when we remembered Zion. Zion is the nickname for the hill on which the temple in Jerusalem was built. And it's in the temple that Israel knew God was present. And we've lost our sacred place. We've lost the place that reminds us of covenant. And here we are sitting in some river. And no wonder we weep. We remember we've broken covenant and the consequence of that is that God has handed us over into exile. Now, sorry, just a few minutes there on, on the background, but it's, it's quite important to see what God is going to do by way of rescue from this situation. He is going to promise that a new covenant, a new bond will be made. God and his people. And it is through the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, that this covenant, this bond, is going to come about. Let's just look at two or three references. And these again are the prophets. The prophets who predicted doom, but also talked of hope. And uh, the first one is Jeremiah 31, page 751. Um, The first half of Jeremiah is actually quite gloomy. It's it's doom-laden. Um, with all that's going to, the catastrophe that's going to come upon Israel unless they turn and repent. And he predicts the exile. He predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. He predicts the destruction of the temple. But then, um, uh, look what he says, chapter 31 and verse 31, as he begins to look ahead with hope. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Those last two lines are a, a covenant language. It's like the signature tune of a, of a, of a favourite programme. You know, sort of the match of the day theme. And sort of the, you know, the match of the day music comes on. Luke knows, hey, it's time to watch the telly. Uh, and, and this is a similar thing. It's a signature tune. I will be their God. They will be my people. It's, it's covenant language. I will be their God and they will be my people. And every time you, you often come across that phrase in the Old Testament. And it's, it's, it's when God is saying, don't forget the covenant. Don't forget the thing that bonds us. And here he is amid the doom through Jeremiah, amid the doom that's foretold. I will be their God, they will be their people as I put their, my law in their minds, verse 33, and write it on their hearts. The law is no longer going to be these sort of written on these external tablets of stone, sort of posted up, you know, the Ten Commandments. He's going to take, as it were, the Ten Commandments and by his spirit engrave them on, on, on you know, the, the stony hearts of the Israelites so that, so that actually what was external is going to become internal. Now let's just link that with another prophecy. The next one is um, in Ezekiel. Uh, on page... Where is it? 823. Ezekiel chapter 36. You can see the, the heading that the NIV gives there. Um, Israel's restoration assured. And um, just at the top. Well, listen, let's go for verse 24. Um, this again is sort of predictive language, prophetic language. Um, assuming the exile, assuming that the Israelites have been carried off in captivity in Babylon. But this is what the prophet God promises through the prophet. For I will take you out of the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your land. I will sprinkle, sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. Then you will live in the land I give your, gave your ancestors. Look, you will be my people and I will be your God. <laughs> so people of Israel go, oh, 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 covenant language, covenant language. The promise, here we are weeping by the rivers of Babylon, but through the prophet Ezekiel. Covenant. And how? What, what is going to happen is he's going to put the law in the hearts of the people. How is he going to do that? Well, here it is in verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. How do we begin to get a handle on this? To, to understand what it is that God is promising and let me offer this analogy. I've given this before in the, the kind of teaching on, um, on Inside Out, which you can download, incidentally, on the, from the website. Um, imagine you're going for a long walk up a mountain and you pack a rucksack full of all the things you'll need. You want a flask of 
drink, you'll want some food and snacks and so on. You'll perhaps want a warm layer or two for when you get a bit higher up, perhaps a cagoule, uh, and one or two other bits and pieces, and you put it in your sack. It's, it's a bit of a wait, but hey, you've had a good breakfast, and you're looking forward to a good walk. And off you trot at a good old pace. And it's, it's great, hiking up the hill, and it just begins to get a bit steeper, and um, breakfast just seems a little bit further away now, and, and suddenly this sack actually is beginning to assume a disproportionate weight. The more weary you get as the terrain gets tougher and the sack gets heavier and heavier. And it's, oh, this is such a burden. Oh, when's the, where's the top? Oh, miles away. Uh, stop. Take the sack off. Open it up. And there's the, there's the drink to refresh you, to rehydrate you, to warm you up. There's some food, some energy, a banana or something. Quick release. Get it in you. And, and there's a kind of double virtuous whammy that takes place. One thing is, you, you've lightened the burden that you were carrying. Because it's gone from the outside to the inside. And in going inside you, it's empowering you and re-energizing you for the walk. So you've got more energy to walk, and you're carrying a lighter load. And... And in a sense, it's a picture of what God is wanting to do. He realizes that all the laws that have accumulated, you must do this, you do that, you do that, it's just, it just becomes like a burden on the people of Israel. And their hearts have grown hard. They're running out of energy, if you like, to live. And God says, right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lift off the burden of the law. And I'm going to give my spirit to energize you from the inside out to empower you and release you and inspire you to live for me. So that you will find yourself wanting to do my law because I've placed it on your heart. It, it just flows from the inside out. And we saw how um, it was certain people at certain times, or I mentioned at least that it was certain people in certain times who would have an experience of God's life, God's spirit in them. But let's see, this, this, this thread of promise, of what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. Let's see to whom it's going to happen. This is um, Joel chapter 2, page 866. Just on a few more pages. Joel, looking ahead to the time when what God is promising through his prophets will happen. And the verse 28 of... Uh, chapter 2. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will pour out my spirit on all people. No longer particular people at particular times, but all people for all times. And do you notice in a kind of quite a hierarchical society and a very male dominated society, do you notice it's sons and daughters, women as well as men, which in a, in a very sort of male dominated society is striking. Do you notice there's no ageism here? Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. This isn't just for the sort of the young or the trendy or the middle class or whatever. There's no distinction. Just as a slight aside, I'm, I'm always, I, my antennae go up a little bit when people say, oh, we, we must be a church who cater for X, or we must be a church who cater for Y, or we must be, a, or, you know, certain people to, no, we must be a church who is full of the Spirit, because the Spirit 
will, will just engender life on all people. And if we go for one type of person, humanly speaking, we'll probably overlook or oversee another type of person. But if we just seek to be full of the Spirit and obedient to Him, then the Spirit will draw all people. There's no ageism, there's no sexism, there's no class, it's just all people, regardless of background or rank or race or age. Regardless of culture. Um, I'm going to uh, assume that most of us are British. Forgive me if you're not. <laughs> How wonderful not to be British in this context. See, we, we, there's a book I've been reading recently. It's called Watching the English. And uh, you'd love it. You guys would love it. You'd just laugh out loud at all the kind of... Just our, how we're so encultured. And uh, the queuing. Queuing. What? Queuing. Oh, no, good. It's good to queue. But, queue, but what happens, you see, is we, we kind of can turn that into a little bit of a defensive virtue. And, um, and this sort of uh, slightly pride-driven inferiority creeps in. We go, oh, no, after you. <laughs> Particularly, you know, here's God wanting to, what's the word he used? Pour out my spirit. Pour out my spirit. I'm longing for you to be full of me. Oh, great. Um, anyone, after you, we'll form a little queue. The vicar, vicar probably ought to be first. He needs it the most. And then, uh, you know, not me. I'll sit, I'll just sit on the edge at the back. I'll watch for a bit. It's not an option with regards to the Spirit. I'm going to pour out my Spirit on all people, God promises. Now, um, we haven't got time to look at these references, but I put them on the sheet for you there. Point number four, under the promise of God. It's just fascinating that after four or five hundred years of silence, even before he was born, Luke in particular records for us how there was spirit activity. God at work by his spirit around the conception, gestation and birth of Jesus Christ. And Luke, is the, the references are there through John the Baptist, through uh, Mary the mother of Jesus, Elizabeth the mother of John the Baptist, a kind of relation of, uh, of Mary and therefore John and uh, Jesus were kind of some distant cousins. And for Zechariah, every time it's the Spirit of God who's energising this sort of awareness, alertness to God at work. And Luke, I think, is wanting us to see that God is saying to us, this person, Jesus, is going to be full of the Spirit. In other words, full of my presence. And this person, Jesus, is the agent, if you like, the one you will recognise, who's going to bring into being this new covenant. He's the one who's going to enable God's people to be bonded to him once more. Precisely because that, that covenant bond is the work of the Spirit, the internal energising. Jesus is the one. And so Luke is wanting to draw our attention to that. Look at the spirit activity around this birth. Keep your eye on him. As they say across the Atlantic, he's the man. <laughs> Just trying to be inclusive. <laughs> let's, look, let's look at John. <laughs> Sorry, how should I said it? He's the man. He's the man. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Jesus, he's the man. He's the man. Right, okay, Luke chapter 3, page 9, uh, what page? 7, 2. Yeah. 
972 and, and verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. That's a word for the, 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 the chosen one of God, the, the special one, the agent who's going to be the man. And they're wondering if John the Baptist was the one. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And just look down at verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. A new form, if you like, of covenant language. And uh, I, I noticed I, I encounter some people, um, I was in conversation with someone the other day actually, I was saying, I, uh, Tim, again, God the Father, fine, you've got God and Jesus. I'm not quite sure why we have to, what is all this thing with the Holy Spirit? I don't quite understand. And it's clear that Luke is wanting us to see that, that John's baptism Baptism basically, um, it, baptizo is the, is the Greek word, and it means to immerse or overwhelm. It was it was used often of dyeing, um, when you dye fabrics. So you take a you take a white cloth and you put it in a dye and you bring you completely immerse it, you baptize it in the dye. And when you bring it out again, it's 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 a completely different colour. It's been completely transformed. And and the early church, the early Christians saw this that this secular word really, and they thought ah. That's the word we want to describe what's happened to us, new Christians, because we have been, as it were, immersed in God because of Jesus, the agent, by his spirit. And, and we, we recognize ourselves to be transformed. We're, we're the same, we're a piece of cloth, we're still human beings, but we're different, radically different. And so they took that, that word in secular usage and adopted it as a, as a church one, which we still use today. So baptism is the, is the mark of of where we recognise, we formally recognise, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer living just for me. I'm living because I'm immersed in someone else. And Luke is wanting us to see that whereas John, John's baptism was a kind of, if you like, a washing, a, a, you know, a, a getting rid of the filth that accumulates, Jesus' baptism by the Spirit is a renewal, the, 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 the agent of transformation. You, you know, we've all, we've all tried to live life the first way, reformation. We've all, we've all recognized ourselves, I, I wish I didn't, I wish I didn't say those things. I wish I didn't do those things. I wish, and we, we've all kind of washed ourselves, as it were. If I just get rid of that, I get rid of those words, get rid of those thoughts, I'll, I'll be a better person. And, you know, maybe God will like me if I could just wash. But, you know what happens. I mean, you know, those of us who, who are around children, you know what happens when you wash them, you clean them, and then you send them on their way. How do they come back to you? Filthy again. <laughs> it's the same with us. We, we can wash ourselves, and for a while, you know, we're, our language is clean and pure and nice, or our thoughts are, are positive and fruitful and life-giving, but actually, for how long, really, if we're honest? We just get... We just get dirty again. And then we get frustrated with us. We think, well, I've got to try harder. I have to make more of an effort. I'm clearly not good enough. And we get into these sort of driven patterns of living. Maybe, maybe if I try harder, I'll be better. We'll, we'll never know whether we're good enough. God knows that. 
And so Jesus' baptism, Jesus' immersing is, is a complete inner transformation. A baptism of the Holy Spirit, a writing on our hearts, an empowering. So that we desire to live the way God calls us to live. We don't suffer from a, what someone once described as a, a hardening of the arteries. I ought to do this, I ought to do that, I ought to do the other. <laughs> but we just have his life coursing through our veins. Not a reformation, but a, a renewal, a transformation. And uh, Jesus, uh, sorry, God, through Jesus, is, is showing us that in his baptism. As he's baptised with water and the Holy Spirit. Final reference, and then we're going to break for coffee. It's just on a few, in John chapter 7, page uh, 1013. And I just want to make this reference so that we can see that Jesus clearly understood. And John, who's recording this for us, he clearly understands that Jesus has come to bring about this new bond, this new covenant, through the outpouring of the Spirit, just as God has promised. Just to set the context, um, let's see the reference. Uh, there's a feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. I can't, well, it's at the start of chapter 7. Jesus goes to the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, Verse 2, when the Feast of Tabernacles was near. Uh, these feasts used to last four days. And all the families and tribes from around uh, Israel would, would congregate on um, Jerusalem. Sometimes it would take days just to get there. Um, and actually some of the psalms are the psalms that they would sing on the way. They were kind of the party songs that they'd sing. You know, in the back of the backseat of the coach. All yeah. the songs you'd sing. Um, uh, as they went to Jerusalem. Um, and so you'll pick that up, the, 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 the sort of last third of the Psalms. You'll see they have this kind of looking forward to a party motif. And, um, and you'd get there, you'd sort of camp there, uh, just around Jerusalem for days whilst this feast and celebration was going on. So you see, verse 14, um, not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. So he goes halfway through uh, and he's there. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles in particular was a... Um, Often what they did was to rehearse their history, the people of Israel, to remind themselves of the goodness of God and to, to, to sort of prompt that sense of anticipation of when he will fulfill his promises. So God promised in the past and let's gather to remind ourselves of that and to look forward to the time when what he promised will be fulfilled. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, they lived in, in, in tabernacles, in sort of these um, little tents, to remind themselves of the time when they were in the desert wandering. And uh, it, it specifically, they'd remember the time when Moses um, drew, through, through God's power, drew water out of the rock. They were, they were about to, to die of thirst. And uh, God provided for them through Moses. And Moses struck the rock with his rod and water gushed out. And so they remember the time when God provided, I mean, he saved their life. He provided life-giving water. Linked in with that is the is, uh, prophecy in Ezekiel where Ezekiel has a vision of a river going from the temple, getting bigger and deeper and wider, and things living on the bank of the river. And it's an, again, it's a, a sort of image of God's spirit bringing life, coming from the temple. And those two things, God giving life and the spirit of life, are linked in what the priest used to do. He would get these great big jars of water and pour the water over the, the altar, the table of sacrifice. And the water would run through 
the kind of um, channels that they had in the temple would run through the channels and out of the temple and trickle down the temple steps and out into the city. And it was a visual aid, if you like, of this image of Ezekiel. It was a visual aid to remind them of God's provision. And they looked forward to the time when these prophecies that we've just been rehearsing in Jeremiah and Ezekiel would come true. Okay, so that's, that's the background. That's what everyone is kind of there for. So look what happens with Jesus. Verse 37, chapter 7. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty, so they're remembering the Moses thing, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, he's thinking of Ezekiel, so are they, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then John cuts in, just to help us with a little editorial comment. So John says, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. A reference to Jesus' death. So John is saying, this is going to happen very soon, after Jesus' death and resurrection. The promise is going to be fulfilled. But Jesus is saying... That which you have been looking for God to do, I am going to fulfill. Jesus clearly understands that as you come to him in order to get to know the Father, you will be filled with streams of living water, an image, if you like, of being filled with the Spirit, so that we may have God's new life and be joined in a new covenant bond with him. Uh, I won't look at it, the, the reference in Acts is when that promise uh, that Jesus is referring to is fulfilled. And on the day of Pentecost, another feast, when the, the disciples are gathered and the Spirit comes down on them in an extraordinary way. And they are filled with the Spirit, such that Peter preaches um, his first sermon. I was thinking of Johnny Gumbel, our, our student the other day, who preached his first sermon, a, a, a fantastic um, sermon for his first sermon. I'm not sure that 3,000 people became Christians as a result of it. That's no disrespect to Johnny. It was a fantastic sermon. But Peter's first sermon, which is quite rough and ready, not nearly as polished as Johnny's. Uh, and yet, the Spirit, with all due respect to Johnny, uh, the, Spirit, the Spirit came and, and convicted, cut to the quick, those who heard, and as, uh, as uh, Luke records in Acts, thousands turned to God and, and drank from him, if you like, for the very first time. Acts chapter 2 and all the way through there. And that's just as Jesus promised. We, we, we're back where we started with the, the promise of Jesus to his disciples that I will send another advocate, one called to be alongside you, to empower you to live so that we can live as God's covenant or bonded people. So that's who is the Holy Spirit. We're going to um, pause and huddle around this heater um, <laughs> or put some warmth inside us. Is that right? I'll hand over to Harry.